welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is the rhetoric of X, where X equals some subject, a profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of a specific discourse community, the anti-political correctness movement. Now let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Analutheria de esti kakia psukes kathain orergantai tu pantakothen kedus. Ah, Tim. Uh, it seems prudent to give some background on political correctness before we're talking about the rhetoric of anti-political correctness uh, community. You couldn't be more correct. Political correctness became a prominent topic after Chairman Mao's Little Red Book was published in 1964. In that book was the idea that political correctness was the disciplined acceptance of the Chinese Communist Party line. And you know who ate this idea of political correctness up? Was it bookworms, Tim? Close. It was leftist academic communities in the United States. I've heard of those scary types of people, Tim. These people discussed the language and ideologies of various rights movements, such as feminism, civil rights, gay and lesbian, and others. They explained how these people had been marginalized and silenced through the years. For these people, political correctness was about rejecting offensive and discriminatory language. And... As this political correctness movement began in leftist academic communities, um, there was a uh, rise in the anti-political correctness movement on the right side of the political spectrum. And these folks felt that political correctness was muzzling them, especially uh, students of a more conservative bent in the classroom. And Tim, I know you're a, a big fan of where people sit, so can you tell us how the left came to be called the left and how the right became, uh, came to be called the right? You know me all too well, Dave. We can thank the French Parliament, formed after the Revolution, for the origins of the left and the right. Okay, so there was a chair of the French National Assembly. And when he looked out to the assembly, there were people to his left and to his right. And there were even some people, get ready for this, in the center. I've heard of those people, Tim. They're scary, too. Indeed. Well, the people to the right were nobles, religious leaders, and the like. They tended to support the aristocracy. To the left were common folks, like you, Dave. They had more radical views and tended to support the middle class. And the people in the center, think of it like this. If the right was ice and the left was fire, the center would be lukewarm water. Or uh, uh, water of a moderate temperature. Bingo. All right. So let's get back to the classroom. So students on the right felt that they were being muzzled and their free speech rights were being taken away. So they fought back. Figuratively, not literally. Well, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so uh, then around 1990, this debate between political correctness and anti-political correctness left the classroom and went public. Even President George H.W. Bush weighed in on this, and the opposition has continued to this day with former President Trump. Yeah, and uh, they were joined by an unlikely group of folks, uh, comedians, uh, Chris Rock, Gilbert Gottfried, Dennis Miller, uh, George Carlin, and even Jerry Seinfeld, uh, at one point or another, have all spoken out about the ills of political correctness. And these folks and others critique political correctness, the critic, they critique the political correctness movement, and it seems prudent to explain the major points associated with that movie, 
as is the nature of this season. Okay. Should we take a break to give our listeners a nice transition into the next section? Okay. I think that'll do. All right. Good job. So now there's two major categories of anti-political correctness arguments uh, against political correctness. The first is about ideology of political correctness, and the second is more about the methodology of political correctness. So let's start with that first one. Uh, the few arguments that are attacking the ideology of political correctness, the first one is that political correctness is a threat to freedom of expression. And that argument goes, uh, the political correctness movement aims to outlaw speaking or writing in a way that political correctness advocates could characterize as being sexist, racist, uh, ageist, ableist, and all sorts of other ways. In other words, the anti-political correctness movement believed that they were being censored because the political correctness advocates can characterize anything they say as being offensive. No kidding. The other day I heard from a colleague mention that one of his neighbors was dead from COVID, but a helpful colleague stepped in and said, we don't say dead anymore. Is that so? What do we say now? Now we say metabolically challenged. All right. Was that funny, Tim? All that right. So the second main argument says that political correctness movement is a threat to academic freedom. Tim, you want to take this one? Can do. That is a demonstrative pronoun which points to a specific object. No, no, Tim. Academic freedom, not the word that. <laughs> Explain academic freedom. Oh, okay. Academic freedom, for our purposes here, consists of professors being free from restraints, from administrative censorship, in what they teach and how they teach it. So if I'm teaching a math class, I can decide to change it up and teach uh, how to watch reruns of the Golden Girls, Tim? Not exactly, Dave. It's more about the university not prescribing or proscribing certain views and ideas that a professor must teach or cannot teach. When I teach the Rhetoric of Science course, I have to teach the Rhetoric of Science, but I'm free to focus on whatever aspects of the Rhetoric of Science I want as long as I'm fulfilling the purpose of the course. So in essence, it's a lot like uh, the freedom of speech argument, but just focused on the university classroom. Bingo. But there's also the idea of research. University faculty should be free to determine their own research agenda, free from the constraints of any political agendas. And not to mention uh, any economic agendas. Uh, research that says university's uh, largest donor is killing the planet should be welcome with an open checkbook. I mean, open arms. <laughs> And, and faculty should be free of any such efforts in determining the curriculum for students. Some may think that a class in contemporary feminist literature is more valuable than a class covering the works of Bill Shakespeare, and they have good reasons for such ideas, but others might oppose such a move for good reason too, but won't say anything because they are worried that anything they said would be characterized as being offensive. To Bill? But, but he's dead. You mean metabolically challenged. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> No, offensive to the constituencies whose lives and realities might be expressed and examined in the literature replacing Bill's great stuff. And political correctness shouldn't be a factor in the hiring or promotion of faculty. Faculty who are anti-politically correct fear that they may be fired or denied promotions because they hold such views, uh, whether that's inside or outside the university. And it's not just the faculty. University students should come and have their views challenged by others, not silenced because they don't conform. Now, Tim, you know I'm a good union man through and through, as are you. But so we got faculty, we got students, but what about the administration? 
Well, they're only good for teaching you what the underside of a bus looks like. But that's a story for another day. I truly cannot wait for that episode. All right. The third and final major argument that the anti-political correctness community makes is that the efforts of political correctness advocates has gone beyond all reason and has become trivial. Yeah, basically, political correctness might have laudable goals, but it has become excessive and ridiculous. Give me some examples, Tim. Instead of calling it a seminar, some have suggested calling it an ovular. You're going to have to explain that one to our younger viewers, Tim. Well, Dave, you see, when a man loves a woman very much, he takes her to Applebee's and buys her a steak dinner. Tim, I'm not sure where you're going with this explanation, but it perpetuates a heteronormative ideology and marginalizes same-sex relations while reinforcing the idea that men should be paid for dinner in exchange for romance later that evening. And that is exactly what a political correctness advocate would say. But anti-PC heirs would say, your comment is absurd and ridiculous, almost as ridiculous as ordering a steak at Applebee's. Amen. You should go to Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) Anyway, so I think we can talk about the two arguments now about attacking the methods of the political correctness movement. Let's do it. All right. So the first is that anti-political correctness movement claims that political correctness activists are guilty of doing the same exact thing they're fighting against, discrimination. In other words, PC activists fight to prevent discrimination by, well, discriminating against the anti-political correctness advocates. By restricting language about something, the PC movement is discriminating against those views. And the second argument is that political correctness movement uses uh, some unjustified means to achieve their goals. Uh, In a certain sense, one side is bullying and coercing the other side to their point of view. At least, this is the point of view from the anti-political correctness advocates. Do you think political correctness advocates see it the same way? Probably not. I'm shocked. Yeah, those are, uh, those are some of the major arguments of the anti-political correctness uh, movement that scholars have found, but I doubt that political correctness advocates or scholars necessarily agree with them. The PC position is more of a moral one rather than a respect my rights one. I agree. Are you ready for your challenge, Tim? Indeed, I am. All right, here's my challenge. I got one for you. You ready? Yes. How much more can we say political correctness? It is one of those things that can uh, tie your tongue up a bit, and I think we've probably said it as much as we ought to say in this episode. I am going to go ahead and say you're politically correct on that. All right, I've got a challenge for you, Dave. All right, what's that? As I know you as a man who likes a good joke, and I expect that your love of jokes does not stop at the classroom door. So I've got a two-part question for you. Do you find yourself editing what you say in a classroom because of concerns about being politically correct? And or have you ever been taken to task by a student or a dean or someone in the administration for any joke of yours that may have seemed to be politically incorrect? You know, Tim, uh, those are very good questions. And here's my response. One, I don't know if many of my jokes... Uh, involved any issues that might be highlighted by political correctness advocates or uh, opponents. So, you know, I'm not not sure I'm doing that. Um, If we take the argument that political correctness uh, advocates, you know, target a lot of things, um, I mean, I guess there might be something, but nothing that sticks out to my mind. You know, I uh, uh, take the example of Jerry Seinfeld, right? He's against the idea of political correctness, but he's not out there being stereotypically anti-politically correct in his comedy. Uh, So I think you can do that. Um, 
do do I change my humor based on my audience? Certainly, I do that. Um, but I don't know if political correctness is a major issue there. Have I ever been called out or challenged by students, administrators, or fellows? Uh, no, no. In fact, the only people who have are the people who find humor. Um, well, they just they're humorless individuals, <laughs> right? Uh, that, that might be politically incorrect to identify someone as humorless. No, these people are self-admitted humorless individuals, uh, and that's sad. <laughs> now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Oh, goody, a rhetorical device. Yay! So the rhetorical figure is the proverb, but we have in mind a particular proverb, to wit, the enemy of my enemy is my friend a maxim that first appeared in a Sanskrit treatise on statecraft in the 4th century BCE. What is particularly interesting about this proverb is its relationship to the logical law of the excluded middle, which states that for any proposition, either that proposition is true or its negation is true. In this case, the middle that is being excluded is a neutral party. The proverb has the same logical structure as the one that states, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Both proverbs rely upon the rhetorical figures of antithesis and oversimplification. I love it, Tim. So, um, who's sponsoring this episode? Today's episode is sponsored by Triple S MAFC Limited, introducing a new way to invest in fine art. Unlike traditional blue chip art investment strategies, we invite you to get in on the ground floor of short selling the artworks of celebrities who were not good artists. That's right, there are dozens of famous celebrities who also painted, and their work sold for top dollar when the celebrities were at the height of their fame. Sadly, once their stars fade, so does the value of their mediocre artwork. Paintings by the like of Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler, and George W. Bush are not going to plummet in value anytime soon. But oils by Prince Charles, Rosie O'Donnell, Stevie Nicks, and Sylvester Stallone have already passed their peak and are expected to accelerate their downward slides. You may ask, why invest in paintings of fading celebrities if they will only go down in value? That's where short selling comes in. You don't actually buy shares in these canvases of declining value, but you borrow the shares. You then sell your borrowed shares at the current price and wait until the price plummets further, at which time you buy cheaper shares of the mediocre art and use those discounted shares to pay back your loan. Just like short selling any traded stock, it's all perfectly legal. What we provide is the research that helps you identify available shares of mediocre art by fading celebrities. What you do is profit when their bad art finally hits the skids. We're Triple S MAFC Limited, the leaders in short-selling shares of the mediocre art of fading celebrities. You know, Tim, um, I know we have conflict of interest here, but I've actually used this service quite a few times. And I'm proud to say just a few days ago, I got my uh, that huge oil painting that I was telling you about. Uh, uh -huh. Painted by Bobcat Goldwaith. <laughs> All right. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetoric O Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. And don't forget, if you have any suggestions for season three or any questions, you can email us at rhetoric.fun at gmail.com.